opened the door to the most powerful room in housing, built for mortgage executives, real estate leaders, and the rising stars that drive innovation and progress. The gathering will feature over 45 powerful speakers on stage in Scottsdale, Arizona from April 21st to 24th. Learn more and register now at housingwirethegathering.com. Welcome everyone. Today on Housing Wire Daily, I'm joined by lead analyst Logan Motoshami to talk about the fact that mortgage rates are now a point lower than at their recent peak and what that means for his recession model. Logan, welcome back to the podcast. It is great to be here, Sarah. What a what a great week this has been on the economic front. It has been incredible. Okay, give us give us the headline number here. Mortgage rates, what is going on? So mortgage rates are down um, 1% now from the recent peak. The 10-year yield has come down noticeably uh, from about 350 to currently right now um, 2.64 as we talk on this Friday morning. Um, and you know, sticking with our talking points over the over this year, we had such an explosion in bond yields and mortgage rates after the uh, Russian invasion and mortgage pricing itself uh, was very disconnected from the 10-year yield. There was stress in the marketplace. But as we've talked about, you know, for rates to go much higher from here, uh, you really have to be in the pro-U.S. economic growth camp. And not only just the United States of America, you Japan and Germany and everywhere else. And then, you know, it would make sense uh, uh, with growth and inflation picking up, uh, rates could go higher. Uh, but not in that camp, just because the six flag recession model was actually things where flags were being raised and raised and raised. So we are here now. And I think um, trying to explain this in the simplest fashion, the 10 year yield and the mortgage rates tend to move together. If you go back to 1975, they trend together, whether you, whether you're putting so much weight on the mortgage backed securities or not. That historical trend has been the case. So if you believe the economy is weakening, then what the 10-year yield is doing looks perfectly normal. And, and I say this, you know, uh, at the uh, end of or, you know, for 2015 and on, my yearly forecasts have always been the, the same. You know, we're, we're going to be in a range between 1.6 to 3%. When COVID happened, uh, talked about the you know, the deflationary aspect of this type of uh, uh, incident, the 10-year yield can get all the way down to negative 21 basis points at 62 basis points. That was, you know, the, the talking point back then. Then when um, April 7th happened, the 10-year yield was above 62 basis points. Guess what? That was the, we're going to write the America's recovery back right there. That was the bottom of the economic cycle. We recovery started. But last year, you know, in 2021, you know, for myself, I had to say, you know what, can the 10-year yield get above 1.94%? Growth is happening, you know, and then inflation happened. But that channel, that downward channel, you know, uh, on, on bond yields and global bond yields were so low that back then, I didn't think we could get above 1.94%, even though the U.S. growth story was there, even though the U.S. inflation story. So here we are in 2022, which I find the most fascinating year ever. Um the 2022 forecast actually talked about the 10-year yield breaking above 1.94%. That was primarily based on global yields rising. Japan and Germany, in fact, targeting Japan and Germany's 10-year yield. And before the Russian invasion happened, the 10-year yield was rising. It couldn't break really above 1.94, but it was getting there. So I know a lot of people talk about that the um, 
Mortgage rates and the 10-year yield only rose because of the Russian invasion. I think we still would have gotten there uh, without the uh, uh, Russian invasion. So let's take this Russian story out of it. Where the 10-year yield is right now looks perfectly normal to what it was from 2010 all the way to 2022. Uh, that channel is still there for the last 12 years. And economic growth is slowing uh, the counter to this is inflation is really hot. Okay, this is true. But Friday morning, one of the Fed's prime indicators, the uh, ECI Employment Cost Wage Index, it blew up again, you know, uh, and the 10-year yield, instead of going up higher, went lower. So we're kind of on a very key technical level there. But if you just look at it in that aspect and forget all the noise, forget about, you know, the 10-year yield should be at 10% and mortgage rates should be at 15%, forget all that stuff. If you follow economic cycles and bond market channels, it looks perfectly normal. Uh, uh, so because of that, um, I think it's a, it's a good discussion to just look at the historical context of the 10-year yield and mortgage rates. And we've had a big move, a 1% move lower. And if we had 2018 pricing, the mortgage rate should be at 4.5% today. Right. So uh, that's the difference between now and then what we saw in 2018 when the 10 year yield got to three and a quarter percent and we had five percent mortgage rates here. Uh, we're a little bit above five percent, but the 10 year yield is much lower. So there, that's the difference of the marketplace. Well, let me ask you this then. Um, could mortgage rates go even lower? Could they go below five percent? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you, you could you could even possibly see uh, a four handle next week. But right now, technically speaking, we're at a very key line right now on the 10-year yield. And that is um, pretty much what we have to look for next week and the few, a few weeks after that, because the economic data is getting worse. It's not getting better, right? Uh, uh, the data lines are trending. The recession red flags are really all up. So if we follow this, uh, that, that's pretty much that downtrend should happen. And the, if the Fed gets more aggressive, it just puts us more into a, 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 a detriment in terms of the economy getting weaker, right? They're not raising rates because the economy is booming, right? They're raising rates to try to destroy the economy. They are very adamant about that in a sneaky way, but they have no justification to raise rates outside of inflation, right? So that's their dual mandate. Their job is price stability. So the only way they can do this is try to create demand destruction and it's really hard for them to do so using short-term rates when you have some of the supply issues that are out there. So, but they, even though they won't want to admit it, um, you know that that discussion with the Federal Reserve when they talked about, hey, listen, the economy is getting weaker. We'll be data dependent. Uh, demand is getting weaker, right? If they don't, if they don't admit that, they're lying, right? Uh, uh, every one of us that track data, we know this, right? This is not this is not an economy that's growing at five or six percent anymore. Uh, the housing cycle is already in a recession. Uh, consumer spending readjusting to inflation is not very strong. So their labor market is the only cover they have right now. If that wasn't the case, most likely uh, it would be probably detrimental to their uh, uh, standard uh, of talking about a dual mandate. As the economy gets weaker, while the labor market's getting weaker, they talk about we want growth to slow down. We want unemployment rates to rise. We want some kind of coolness. I think this is going to be a very, very tough period for the Federal Reserve going out uh, if they keep on pushing. We have to destroy oil prices. And the way to do it is 
have millions of Americans lose their jobs so they don't go driving. Well, demand destruction is somewhat happening to a degree. Um, so it's, it's fascinating in that aspect because the bond market right now is telling the Federal Reserve, which I always thought it was, uh, no, sir. Uh-uh. Okay. You, this is, there's limits to what you can do before you destroy enough demand, before people start losing their jobs, before interest rates are going up higher and inflation is higher, which means those American citizens that lost their jobs are going to be really stressed, especially those that have children. And we're starting to get into the growth rate of jobs, you know, maybe slowing down enough to where, you know, we start talking about when, when is the job loss recession happening? Uh, jobless claims have been rising, but they're still at a very historical low level. Uh, consumption, you know, uh, is stable. It is, even though nominal G- consumption is very high, if you adjust it to inflation, it's, it's okay. Uh, so we're in that stage and the bond market for now is rejecting the Federal Reserve's uh, uh, premise that the economy is strong, uh, even though they kind of hint at things are weakening, you know. So it's hard for them because everyone now is asking them for a recession. And if everyone asks you, are we going into recession, you have to defend your rate hikes. You're going to say the economy is strong. And that's what the Fed governors are doing. And everybody looks at the data. They're like, hmm. It's just the labor market at this point, right? Uh, so it, it, it's we, we haven't had to deal with this in the past because if this was what we saw in 2018, the Fed's already cutting rates, right? The Fed's already changing their mind. They're already pivoting, but they can't because there's dual mandate, price stability, and, and they are bent on going after that. So they're just doing their job in that sense. Well, let me follow up a little bit. When you said um, you mentioned job loss recession, but we're not there yet. What is the number? What's the threshold for you to label something a job loss recession? Well, traditionally, jobless claims gets well below, well above three hundred thousand uh, on a historical basis, and then that's when you start to lose jobs. So we're, we're in that we're in this situation to where uh, demand is is there. Like technically, I can't call this a recession because uh, employment is growing. Real sales are still positive. Industrial production is positive, but they're all weakening, right? Uh, the next stage of this uh, economic discussion is that those things start to weaken enough to where people start to lay off uh, 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 more and more people. However, this is a very fascinating. We're in this. We're in this historical period of time where the baby boomers are leaving, and people have to hold on to as much uh, labor as they possibly can. Come, I mean, millions of people get fired and hired a month. Okay, it's just the, you know, the, do, we, do we create more jobs than we lose? Uh, there are a lot of companies who already laid off a good portion of their workforce, right? So we see this in the mortgage industry. We see this in the real estate industry. We see this in the tech industry. But in general, it's, it's a service sector economy. So as long as consumers are spending, right, uh, the majority of the workforce is working. Uh, so that would have to be the next stage. And that's why when we think of a, a recession, we think of a job loss recession where consumption is down. Uh, uh, and people get laid off because they're not consuming enough, right? We're not an exporting country where we have to revolve around currencies and exporting or anything like that. We were basically a domestic economy. And this is why uh, the employment is still holding up uh, very well. But it's also we're almost in September, right? And we talked about this for a while now. I think by September of 2022, we should get all the jobs back that was lost to covid uh, and uh, we're we're not that far off. We just need a couple hundred thousand jobs per month, and by the end of September, we should be there. And it's really strange for me because the recession red flags are already up. So 
it's just the different dynamics of this economic expansion coming from COVID and all the other variables that are here that we all have to deal with, uh, adjusting to a global pandemic, the recovery from a global pandemic, which is strong, and then some of those things cannot be sustained themselves and kind of a bullwhip effect on data, uh, high velocity data. That's really crazy. But it's, it's, it's fascinating to me that the bond market in theory was always telling the Fed, hey, listen, we're not getting the 10-year yield to 5 6 7%. Uh, you're not getting 10% mortgage rates. You know, the economy simply can't take it. And here, right in front of two 75 basis rate hikes, the bond yields have reversed. And if you just step back and look at the history of the 10-year yield and economic cycles, especially, it's pretty much acting normally. I mean, I can make a case that the 10-year yield is is probably just a little bit too high considered, considering the uh, uh, some of the data lines, but that's it. It looks normal. And then if you just take away all the noise about everything else uh, and you look at that downtrend in the bond market since 1982, it looks good. It looks pretty much how it should be. I know there are a lot of people uh, looking at this data who do not feel that way, who are like, what is going on? It does not look normal or good or what, what should be going on to them. So that's why we have you on to give us those insights. And so uh, walk through, you, you mentioned it, but walk through your recession model, because on the one hand, you have six recession red flags up. On the other hand, you said, I can't really call it a recession yet. And of course, this is what people are pressing Biden on and his administration. Are we in a recession or are we not? So I'm asking you, Logan Motoshami. Well, the simple answer is, if you look at the history of U.S. economics, a recession usually means a job loss recession with uh, uh People losing jobs, real incomes falling, uh, consumption falls, and pretty much industrial production is not there. Uh, so in that context, there is no recession. In fact, the only reason we actually have negative GDP in two quarters are these inventory builds, right? Uh, and that's actually the fourth recession red flag. You know, we talked about that. You know, that was, you know, the, we built, we ordered too much. We're going to have too much supply, you know. Uh, the supply was low. So, so in that context, no, it isn't. But the recession red flag model is designed to show a progression model, right? Which is the, the irony is that the leading economic index, the, the conference board is asking me to present uh, my six recession red flag model uh, next week to talk I about how do, yeah, how do I look at this? And I say it's just the typical progression. So I, I don't care about the labels as much as the model itself showing people how economic cycles work because it takes the human element out of it. Uh, the human element is ideological people, whether you're Democrats, Republican, MMT people, gold bugs, whatever it is, take take humans out of the equation, look at the data and look at the data in the past. How does it look like now? The economy is weakening, right? But uh, the nominal GDP is like 8%. Uh, so retail sales is growing at 8 9%. Even for myself, I can't even believe this. Durable goods orders is up 10% year over year still in the last three weeks. And I'm just like, oh my God. So the gross domestic income data are still positive. So there, it's just a very funky economic recovery and recession model just because of the dynamics of having a global pandemic in a global economy where global uh, uh, mechanisms of transfers of supplies have been, uh, you know, we've never had so much, uh, we've never had an economy historically speaking that the supply curves are really from other countries. And the parts of certain things, like the auto industry has been just wrecked because they can't get, you know, enough cars. And now, you know, is demand is fading. So there's all these different dynamics that 
we can't look back in you know the 1700s, 1900s, or even post World War II. It's just different, and we try to adjust to this as much as possible. But rates rose, new home sales sector is at risk, recession red flag up uh, because the builders build only to what they can sell, so that's not that difficult. Um, uh, but now the leading economic index, all those ten variables are all falling down together. It peaked really in April, I consider it May, but uh, traditionally when they fall, when all the other flags are up, you're going into recession. Uh, uh, that's always been the case, especially since 1960. So I am just looking at the data with a acknowledgement that things are just different because of COVID uh, uh, and we have to adjust to that, but we stick to the model and then we try to figure out if it's going to turn. Uh, uh, in a positive way in the future if rates fall. So mortgage rates falling 1%, uh, it's, uh, that's a noticeable decrease. Uh, it will, can it fall even more? Yes, that would be the traditional. Is the Fed going to freak out and go, oh my God, I want financial conditions tightening, not loosening. You know? So you got the stock market rallying, you got mortgage rates, that's not tightening for them. So it, I, I, I really wish I could have a conversation with them and say, what do you want to achieve outside of inflicting more pain on American people at this point, right? Because uh, the bond market doesn't care what you're doing. QE is over, right? People said, oh, when QE ends, the 10-year yield's going to skyrocket. Oh, this is like the sixth time we've had this conversation. Uh, and the bond market <laughs> are like not breaking out to back to the mid-90s or the early 80s. So there's something here that looks perfectly normal uh, with the 10-year yields. And then there's economic data that just still looks weird to us. Uh, uh, but we try to do the best we can with the information given to us with the re reality that the commodities war that we saw, uh, wheat prices accelerated up higher after the Russian invasion. They've fallen down. Commodity prices like copper have fallen down in a noticeable fashion. Those things, commodity pr uh, co copper prices, very noticeable, for especially for housing, those things are not bullish uh, uh, indicators, uh, uh, especially with copper. What happens with oil? Boy, we'll, we'll, we'll look at the supply of that. But copper prices falling, 10-year yield falling, leading economic index falling, uh, the builder's confidence falling. These are things that historically have led to a recession going back to the Peloponnesian War. And that I don't, I don't see that changing unless you get a reversal of all those things together. I appreciate the Peloponnesian War reference. I always look for those. And definitely, you know, that's what I'm looking for in my economic news. <laughs> now, it's actually one of the things we love about you. You have that historical perspective. You're looking at this long term. One of your favorite charts is that 40-year chart that nobody else looks at that you've kind of made. Well, <clears throat> when we talk about the downtrend, if you look at from 1982 down to uh, 2022. What traditionally happens with the 10-year yield, not what we saw in the mid-70s or the early 80s, um, bond yields find a kind of a top end on the 10-year yield, and then when the economy gets weaker, it falls, right? So I think the difference uh, uh, in the 70s is that <clears throat> rates and bond yields rose in a recession, right? Much different dynamics back then, uh, especially in the, in the early 80s before this downtrend happened. So uh, that's why I've always tried to stress people. I, the, the people that are really bearish on the United States of America are also people that believe that mortgage rates and the 10-year yield has to shoot up higher. Uh, these people want 
a housing crash. They want foreclosures. They want, because let's be honest, these people hate the Federal Reserve. They don't really care about anything else. They hate that their lives are just about, you know, everything's a Ponzi scheme. Life itself on planet Earth is a Ponzi scheme. And this is why most of these guys are men. The last 12 years, they're always bearish. So here in this context, inflation has gone up so much. And in reality, the 10-year yield should be much higher. Uh, that's why there was a conflict in me in 2021 when I was forecasting. I said, do I think the 10-year yield can break above 1.94%? with global yields down? No. In 2022, though, I said, okay, if global yields rise in Germany, eh, we could get above there. But then the Russian invasion came and then it was just like, okay, things are about to get crazy. But take that away from the, take the Russian invasion out of the equation. The 10-year yield looks pretty normal right now. That 1.6 to 3% range, you know, it, it's, it's hanging in there a lot. And it's, it hasn't been able to hold above 3%. That's why I have this running joke, whenever the 10-year yield goes below 3%, I go, hello, we all survived the 3% tenure because there's a lot of men on Twitter that freak out when you see the 3% tenure. They're like petrified. It's like the boogeyman. They're putting their blankets over their heads in their beds like little kids again. So when we survive it, it's a great thing for the United States of America because all the men survived this, right? So uh, we keep on posting that out there. And here we are today. The world is still functioning. And there's a lot of drama, of course, but... Uh, the 3% tenure didn't destroy the United States of America like some people think. Last question. You have been team higher mortgage rates so that inventory would increase, we'd get back to a more balanced housing market, even with where they are right now, which is a, a whole point off their peak, but, but the potential to go lower. What does that mean for inventory? And how much inventory did we get in that little span of time when it was rising? So one of the things that I'm keeping an eye on now is the new listings data. Uh, you know, Redfin and Realtor.com show this on a weekly basis, and we've had negative new listings data for three weeks now. Uh, especially if you look at the Redfin data, it's actually the, the downward slope is actually more aggressive now than it is uh, in the last two years. Uh, this goes back to the, the notion of panic selling, right? That was the real big professional grift. The United States of America, there's 143 million units out here. And, and when rates get to 4%, everyone's going to run, run to the hills, uh, sell their homes, and millions and millions of inventory will, will miraculously happen. And there's no buyers in. Prices have to crash 30 40% just because that's not how housing works. Uh, the team higher rates premise was that why are home prices still up noticeably? It's because we're working from all-time lows. It takes time, right, for the market to change. Uh, so we had to break this, you know, 20% home price growth run uh, that we say, if you look at Case Shiller still, uh, if mortgage rates were still below 4%, we would have had another 20% home price year. Rate, rate, higher rates are slowing demand down, but the inventory level channels are so low that the days on the days on market fell year over year in the last existing home sales report. I am smashing my head on the wall. The one thing that I need to rise is not rising enough yet. So we'll see how the rest of the year. I mean, in, in real terms, the seasonality factors are kind of ending. Uh, uh, it's almost August. Usually, what happens is that uh, the second half of July, the growth rate of inventory starts to slow down by itself. We see this now. Uh, uh, but the new listings are falling. So 
what I'm hoping, you know, maybe that rates have dropped now a percent. Some people say, you know, hey, listen, rates are, I, I can list my home now as long as rates are this low or something, but we have to get back to 2019 levels. We're not, we, some of the parts of the US are, are, are there just on the bottom end half, but we need total inventory to just touch 1.93. And then it, it'll make sense to everybody why I've targeted that level because we still had a functioning market, even though 2019 levels were four decade lows. I'm gonna repeat this, 2019 inventory levels were four decade lows, right? That is still enough to have a balanced market as we saw in 2018 and 19. What happened early this year was the worst housing market I've seen post 2010, just because the natural uh, uh, inventory broke to all time lows, too many people chasing too few homes, forced bidding action, you don't want that, right? So the higher rates broke that. Uh, uh, and I think it's a positive that inventory is rising. We just need it to go a little bit more. And once we're at 2019 levels, everything's good. Whatever, there's enough There's enough homes on the market to prevent the chaos. And I think one good uh, indicator is Redfin's data uh, as well. You know, we had like a 68 to 72% of the market was multiple bids. That's down to under 49%. Those things are positives to me, uh, right? Those things uh, being up at 70%, not a positive, right? Nobody wants to be in a bidding war with a home, right? And now that more inventory is coming, more choices, more choices are a good thing. The boring and balanced market is what we want. We don't want the chaos that started, you know, kind of in the fall of 2020, uh, all the way up to, you know, February, March of 2022. Logan, thank you so much for joining us today. We are keeping a close eye on this. I know that you are writing articles for us on a regular basis, and we'll check back with you in just a few days. But thank you so much for the great update. How have the 2022 housing market forecast changed? Or how is the industry navigating the shift to a purchase-driven market? HousingWire's premium content program, HW+, answers questions like these and offers a variety of member-exclusive benefits that are tailored to what you need to stay competitive and agile in today's fast-paced market. Go to housingwire.com forward slash membership to join today. With your HW Plus membership, you get access to longer-form digital content, the HousingWire magazine, member-exclusive rates to in-person events like HousingWire Annual, and more. Thanks for listening to HousingWire Daily. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to take a minute to rate the show and leave a comment. And make sure to tune in tomorrow for more news and insight.